0: Corporations and Propaganda, Managing Public Opinion by Alex Carey The little-known Australian sociologist and psychologist Alex Carey, at his death in 1988, left behind a set of unpublished manuscripts that traced the history of propaganda in the U.S. from World War I to the Reagan era, a treasure in the eyes of notables such as Noam Chomsky, It is the first, and to this day only, history of a three-quarter century effort of social engineering and corporate propaganda in the U.S. The aim was to undermine democracy, destroy the union movement, and to establish the unfettered rights of industry and the so-called free market system. Even Thomas Jefferson predicted that corporate power could undermine freedom and democracy. Those who feel today that democracy has failed ought to consider Alex Carey's well-documented report of the most intense and most expensive sales campaign that corporations have ever undertaken. Democracy did not fall, Carey says, but it was dismantled and it is surely in crisis today. Last week you heard the amazing story of the first government-sponsored wartime propaganda effort of World War I under leadership of the nephew of Sigmund Freud, Edward Bernays. Through the story of defeat in the Palmer Raids, the resurgence of democratic rights during the Depression, Alex Carey brought us up to World War II. Again, as during World War I, the American people believed that the ideal of freedom and democracy, for which they were asked to fight and die, applied to them as well. And again, like in 1919-1920, the late 40s and early 50s became an era of backlash and defeat, beginning with the McCarthy era. Ed Markman is the reader of the manuscript by Alex Carey
1: the post-war victory of corporate propaganda. During the McCarthy period, business first beat back the unions with the Taft-Hartley Act and then secured a shift to conservatism in American politics similar to the shift which followed its campaigns of 1919-1920. In December 1945, the NAM summarized its use of newspapers and
2: radio during 1945. Every day, one or more news stories about the National Association of Manufacturers appears in newspapers in some part of the country, and often in all newspapers in all parts of the country. On the airwaves this year, NAM members, officers, and committees spoke directly with the public for a total of 1,350 hours of time, or 56 full 24-hour days. Their words reached into the homes of Americans and into the barracks of Americans stationed in all parts of the world. By 1946, the NAM was only one
1: of a great number of business-sponsored organizations that were cooperating to drench the country with anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-union, and anti-New Deal propaganda.
3: When will the plain, ordinary, sincere, yet sheep-like people of America awaken to the fact that their common affairs are being arranged and run for them by aliens? Communists, crackpot refugees, renegades, socialist termites and traitors. If you, the American people, don't get busy and fight, this whole vicious plot will be slipped over on you without your knowing what to hit you. What's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. We have robbed man of his liberty. We have taught the American businessman until he is afraid to sign his name to a paycheck for the fear he is violating some bureaucratic rule that will call for the surrender of a bond, the appearance before a committee, or even imprisonment itself. We are going to take the government out of the hands of these city slickers and give it back to the people that still believe that two and two is four.
1: The United States Chamber of Commerce was one such organization. Their annual report summarizes one very specific part of its activities during 1946-47, the
2: distribution of large pamphlets of some 50 pages each. 1946, more than a million copies of the Chamber pamphlet Communist Infiltration in the United States were distributed and received with shocked surprise in many quarters. 1947, Communists within the Government, a Chamber publication brought screams of anguish not only from known communists, but from others. A cabinet officer sought its withdrawal. However, the government's loyalty program, inadequate but still a loyalty program, was begun. Many of the country's largest firms, Fortune magazine
1: observed in 1950, have started extensive programs to indoctrinate employees. The American Advertising Council represents large corporations and large advertising agencies. In April 1947, the council announced a $100 million advertising program which, over the next 12 months, would use all media to sell the American economic system to the American people. The program was officially described as a major project of educating the American people about the economic facts of life. Daniel Bell, then an editor of Fortune, provides a perspective on both the scale and the anti-Union and anti-New Deal purposes of these campaigns.
2: It has been industry's prime concern in the post-war years to change the climate of opinion ushered in by the Depression. This free enterprise campaign has two essential aims, to re-win the loyalty of the worker which now goes to the Union and to halt creeping socialism. In short, the campaign has had the definite aim of seeking to shift the Democratic majority of the last 20 years into the Republican camp. The output is staggering. By all odds, it adds up to the most intensive sales campaign in the history of industry.
1: American businesses, pre- and post-war assaults on public opinion, had a double objective. To turn the public against the Democratic administration of Roosevelt and Truman and their liberal supporters and to turn it against the growing power of the trade union movement that resulted from the Wagner Act of 1935. The first objective was achieved with the McCarthy period and the election of Eisenhower in 1952.
3: Dwight D. Eisenhower, the 34th President of the United States. We must be ready to dare all for our country, for history does not long entrust the care of freedom to the weak or the timid. A people that values its privileges above its principles, soon loses both.
1: During World War II, business made unprecedented profits while wages remained controlled. When the war ended, business had, in addition to its long-term objective of weakening the union movement, two immediate concerns, to minimize wage rises and maximize price rises. At the 1946 elections, Labor problems was one of the chief political issues on which the Republicans won control of Congress. The NAM took the initiative and drafted a new labor law and arranged for its submission to the new Congress. The Taft-Hartley Act, passed in 1947, embodied the NAM's proposals completely, except for a ban on industry-wide bargaining. Not surprisingly, it placed tremendous obstacles in the way of the new organization of workers. Public opinion, however muddled, did no longer support the unions. It was the force which backed the new curbs on unions enacted in the post-war years. The General Motors strikes, like most of the other important strikes in the 1945-46 upsurge, were fought not on the picket line, but in Washington and in the press and over the radio. The outcome was that while unions won the strikes, business won the public relations battle, with the Taft-Hartley Act as its prize. Apart from years affected by the Korean War, the American labor movement was never again able to increase the low proportion of the workforce it had organized. Thirty years later, in the face of a renewed propaganda and public relations onslaught by business in the 1970s, organized labor in the United States went into a steep and possibly terminal decline. By the end of 1946, The business campaigns have paid off. Public opinion condemned the strikes of 1945-46. Unions came off with worse public relations than companies. A survey shows that the public thought that companies had higher regard for the public interest than the unions, and even union members were now less favorably disposed towards their own unions. The public now associated unions with mass picketing and violence, although there was no violence in the strikes of the past years. The midterm elections of 1946 marked labor's worst defeat since Hoover's day. A truly amazing victory for corporate public relations. Alex Carey then goes on to describe the 50s as an era where corporations tried to find ways to replace the unions. The Wagner Act had made it illegal to use company unions as a way of preempting unions, so the companies had to search for other avenues. This search became officially known as the human relations movement. It embraced such notions as employee participation, employee communication, and democratic decision-making. Sounds familiar? Vast amounts of money all of a sudden became available for the study of human relations in industry. Peter Drucker, doyen of American management consultants, said in 1950, with amazing frankness, that, quote, Most of us in management have instituted human relations as a way of busting the unions. That trend continued through the 50s. Looking back at that decade, Professor Robert Dahl of Columbia finds very little difference between democracy and totalitarianism.
2: If political preferences are simply plugged into the system by leaders, business or other, in order to extract what they want from the system, then the model of electoral democracy is substantially equivalent to the model of totalitarian rule.
1: Propaganda in the 70s. Chapter 3 of Alex Carey's study on managing public opinion. The corporate offensive. The corporate campaigns to influence and change public opinion during the pre- and post-war periods have been largely directed at the grassroots with a primary purpose of reaching large numbers of people directly and thereby changing public opinion. These campaigns continue into the 70s and they are necessary. First Vietnam, then Watergate produced a disastrous collapse in public regard for all American institutions and for business in particular. So in 1975, the Advertising Council again initiated a national program of conservative economic education on a scale similar to the post-war program. In 1977, Fortune described the continuing ad council campaign as a study in gigantism, saturating the media and reaching practically everybody. By 1978, according to expert witnesses before a congressional inquiry, American business was spending one billion dollars per year on grassroots propaganda. The effectiveness of the new propaganda program was monitored by a standardized, vastly detailed poll sponsored by the Advertising Council and repeated every 12 months. By 1980, the annual poll showed that the proportion of Americans who think there is too much government regulation, a matter at the very heart of the new right propagandists' concerns, had risen from 42 percent to 60 percent. Ronald Reagan's election followed a New York firm which specializes in monitoring public opinion for business, reviewed the changed mood of American politics and observed,
2: Between Jimmy Carter's election in 1976 and Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980, the outlook of the American people underwent one of those decisive shifts that historians generally label as watershed events. The
1: review speculates about possible explanations for the startling reversal of public opinion but it entirely overlooks business's billion-dollar propaganda campaigns. Again, as in 1919-21 and 1945-50, a business-sponsored assault on public opinion coincides with a dramatic swing to conservatism. And still, the meaning of all this for democracy is not raised in any substantial way. Yet another form of propaganda is developed in the 70s, It is the hallmark of the emerging neoconservative movement and Alex Carey calls it, as distinct from the traditional grassroots, the treetops propaganda. What you're about to hear now is the chapter on think tanks and their role in the election of Ronald Reagan from Alex Carey's study, Managing Public Opinion, The Corporate Offensive. 1970s in the United States and the United Kingdom. Treetops propaganda. Treetops propaganda is not directed at the person in the street. It is directed to influencing a select audience of influential people policymakers in Parliament and the civil service, newspaper editors and columnists, economics debate on TV and radio. Its immediate purpose is to set the terms of debate. To determine the kind of questions that will dominate public discussion. In a word, to set the political agenda in ways which are favorable to corporate interests. As this tactic succeeds, public discussion no longer assumes, for example, that affluent societies have a first responsibility to provide jobs for all who want them, and the debate is instead about whether 6% or 10% is a natural, and by implication acceptable level of unemployment. It is no longer taken for granted that we have a right to clean air and the debate centers on how far the cost to industry of pollution control is economically acceptable. The debate ceases to be about how far it is necessary for government to be involved in the economy and centers on arguments for reduced involvement and schedules for achieving this. The debate is no longer about whether unions have too much power or even too little power, given the huge size of contemporary corporations, but about which is the best way to reduce that power. The tactics by which such changes in the political agenda are secured is for the corporations to search out articulate conservative economists and amenable academics, gather them together in lavishly-funded, tax-deductible think tanks, and pay them handsomely to inundate relevant debate with an endless stream of books and research reports. In the U.S., the work of the many private think tanks which develop policies on a range of national issues is known as policy research. Such organizations have been around for a long time, some more right-wing, like the Conference Board and the Hoover Institution, Others, less right-wing, like the Brookings Institution and the Committee for Economic Development. The 1970s saw the emergence of an aggressive new breed among these organizations, which, lavishly funded by corporations, produced an incessant flow of market-oriented studies. Perhaps most importantly, the new think tanks placed a quite new emphasis on promoting and disseminating their products nationwide, that is, on proselytizing. The new or revitalized think tanks and the scholars they recruited virtually created the neoconservative movement of the 1970s. I would like to add here another observation from Noam Chomsky, an observation that addresses the particular danger of propaganda that is directed not at the people at large,
2: but at the educated parts of the population. One reason that propaganda often works better on the educated than on the uneducated is that educated people read more, so they receive more propaganda. Another is that they're the commissars. They have jobs as agents of propaganda, and they believe it. By and large, they're part of the privileged elite and share their interests and perceptions. The rest of the population is more marginalized. It doesn't participate in the democratic system, which is overwhelmingly an elite game.
1: Such propaganda directed at the educated, the elites, at lawmakers, as well as those who interpret the laws, is the main function of think tanks. The most important of the new think tanks is the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research, AEI, founded in 1943 with money from Lilly Endowment, Ford, Weyerhaeuser, and Reader's Digest. AEI gained such importance during the first Reagan campaign that it assumed almost mythical powers with Reagan's first election. And, according to the New York Times, a consultant to frustrated Democratic Party members told them, quote, they ought to remember that AEI did not win the election, but that Reagan did, end of quote. Reagan himself, however, gratefully acknowledged the support he had received from AEI. One of the first visits he paid to anyone after his election was to the AEI, where he received a standing ovation. Reagan addressed the meeting and said, quote, I just want you to know that we'll be looking closely at your observations and proposals. This kind of working relationship with the AEI is one the next administration wants to maintain during the next four years. End of Reagan quote. Reagan then proceeded to choose six top appointees for his first administration from the pool of AEI scholars. As a cheerleader for the free market economy, the Heritage Foundation organizes communication among what it calls a resource bank of a thousand academics and several hundred other policy research groups. In 1978, the president of the foundation, Dr. Fulner, addressed an international conference of corporate opinion managers assembled in London. The American public policy arena, he reported happily, is awash with in-depth academic studies which lead to the inescapable conclusion that the free market operates more efficiently, more humanely, and less expensively than any planned statist or socialist alternative. The last American think tank I shall discuss is the Business Roundtable. Founded in 1972, the Roundtable comprises the CEOs of 194 of America's largest corporations. Its membership represents approximately half the GNP of the U.S., the Roundtable's GNP is greater than the GNP of any country in the world, apart from the U.S. In the same year it was founded, Justice Lewis Powell, shortly later elevated to the Supreme Court by the Nixon administration, wrote a famous memorandum for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which was a virtual manifesto for the neoconservative movement. In it, Powell urged business to buy the top academic reputations in the country, to add credibility to corporate studies, and give business a stronger voice on the campuses. A study by Ralph Nader's organization observes that the Round Table buys supporting research through the hiring of expensive consultants and the sponsoring of academic studies. Money generates information in the form of studies and position papers, and the Roundtable has access to all the money it needs. The dominant purpose leading to its formation, the Nader report finds, was a desire to combat and reduce union power, and it proclaims moderation while sabotaging moderate reform. Roundtable members consider their defeat of labor law reform and consumer protection bills in 1977-78 to be their biggest victories. It is instructive to consider some of the means the Roundtable and its allies employed to achieve these victories. What had happened to the Labor Law Reform Act? There are a couple of peculiar American handicaps to union organizing. Management can delay indefinitely representation elections. And whenever management calls a meeting to argue against union organization, it can prevent access to unions at these meetings. In fact, preventing unions from stating their case. The proposed Labor Law Reform Act was to secure some limited reduction in these handicaps. The Business Roundtable joined the NAM, the Chamber of Commerce and others, and the National Action Committee to wage all-out war against the bill. While its associates flooded Congress with stimulated mail, running to millions of letters and postcards, attacking the power and legitimacy of organized labor, the NAM kept a relatively low profile. It hired a public relations firm to manage its enormous grassroots efforts which, in an update of the Mohawk Valley formula, were directed to stimulating public sentiment hostile to unions. To this end, opinion surveys were used for publicity as quickly as the pollsters could produce the right result. And 329 pages of editorials opposing labor law reforms were prepared and distributed to local newspapers countrywide. In December 1977, as though to signal an all-out war on labor, the president of the NAM announced the formation of the Council on a Union-Free Environment, which would, he said, be the first single-purpose national organization devoted to the maintenance of a union-free environment in the United States. A second victim to such lobbying became the Consumer Protection Bill, The Roundtable and its allies organized a national distribution of cartoons, pamphlets, ads, and newsletters in opposition to the Consumer Protection Agency, CPA. The Roundtable hired a public relations firm to distribute canned editorials and cartoons opposing the bill to 1,000 daily newspapers and 2,800 weeklies. Portions of the distributed material were published without indication of source, approximately 2,000 times. The Roundtable also sponsored a fraudulent poll which claimed to show 81% of Americans opposed to the CPA, when independent polls showed them as two to one in favor. The Chamber of Commerce exploited the fraudulent poll in full-page ads in the New York Times and elsewhere. The defeat of the bill for a consumer protection agency was, Fortune reported, in 1980, a signal victory for the round table and, in retrospect, a watershed in the history of consumerism. A review of the round table's history in the
2: nation sums up its achievements. After a decade of defeat for the trade union movement, segments of a divided and weakened labor movement are now negotiating with key round table figures for a separate peace. With this final twist, the new deal comes full circle. In the late 1970s, as in the late 1920s, the business of America is business, and the populace cannot imagine it otherwise. As in
1: 1919, 1921, and 1946 to 1950, so in 1976 to 1980, complete business hegemony over American society was reestablished. On each occasion, the same propaganda and public relations methods, if increasingly sophisticated, have accomplished the same result.
0: That was the second half of a one-hour program on corporations and propaganda by the late Alex Carey, an Australian sociologist and psychologist. The principal reader was Ed Markman. The music is by Chas Smith. Richard Friedman read the text quotes. Sound clips are from the audio collection of San Francisco State University. The original program was produced in 1988 with help from the staff at KPFA Radio in Berkeley by me, Mariah Gillardin. A collection of essays by Alex Carey with a foreword by Noam Chomsky has since been published posthumously under the title Taking the Risk Out of Democracy. This program received the largest listener response of the year when it was first aired during a KPFA fundraiser. In preparing it for this broadcast, I was moved by the importance of the historic facts and carries analytical ideas. I decided to present it again at this time because it answers so many questions about the media, democracy, and corporate power. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Downloads are free, and we appreciate any size donation to keep TUC Radio on the air. Our email address is tuc at tucradio.org. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. Time of useful consciousness is an aeronautical term. It's the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness. Time for useful projects to rescue the planet and the plane. My name is Maria Gelauden. Thank you for listening.